Hi, I'm Greg Eulen with Reynolds & Reynolds, and this is Connected. Today, I'm excited. I get to sit down with Jason Stein. Jason is uh, the CEO and owner of Flat 6 Media. Um, he's also the host of the Cars & Culture radio show on Sirius XM. Uh, it's on Business Channel 132. Um, Jason actually moved over to Sirius XM about two years ago, not quite two years ago, and he's already got 10 million views on YouTube for his uh, Cars & Culture show. Um, just, just a little under two years. Pretty impressive. Uh, coming up on the 104 guest mark, but but uh, Jason, thanks so much for, for joining. I definitely appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to start just talking about guests because we actually, um, you know, this podcast started in March of 2020 uh, in my my basement, bottom of my house, <laughs> and uh, like many, many uh, podcasts did. But uh, around the same time, you were at Automotive News. You were the uh, uh, the editor of Automotive News at the time, I believe. And there, there was a podcast that you had started a few years before that. It was um, uh, uh, Weekend Drive, I think it was. And you transitioned around that same period to daily drive. And, and you went, I mean, I don't even remember how many days straight of just <laughs> guest after guest every single day. So I um, wanted to start there and just uh, talk a little bit about what, what that transition was like. And we'll get into where you're at today, but just constantly talking every single day and coming up with content. Uh, well, you know, first of all, I was much smarter when it was a weekly format because uh, <laughs> the only problem with doing daily is that it's daily. And, uh, you know, your your memory's right. Uh, so my last eight years at uh, uh, Automotive News, I was uh, the publisher and and we were doing weekend drive, which was something that was basically to, to serve an audience uh, from a video standpoint uh, on on the weekends, because what we found is that a lot of dealers really liked watching and, and consuming uh, the content that we had on a on a Saturday or a or a Sunday. And so we went into the studio, we built a studio and um, we had guests in, it was wonderful. Sometimes there were three or four of us on set talking about uh, various issues that were going on, but it was, it was single issue focused, maybe one or two different things. But then of course, March, 2020 hits and we have the commitment from our uh, sponsors to have weekend drive on, but we can't get into the TV studio. So uh, <laughs> I thought to myself, uh, you know, in the midst of all of this, how are we going to save the business, but serve the reader, which is or serve the audience, which was always uh, the mantra. And uh, podcasts were not as prevalent as they are now, um, but some were out there. So I started with an iPad in my closet, calling my son <laughs> and seeing whether or not we could actually record on this iPad. And uh, sure enough, it was uh, tremendously easy to do. It was, uh, you know, quite literally holding a phone up to the iPad and recording it that way. Uh, fairly primitive technology, and boom, Daily Drive was formed. Um, and uh, a, you know, several of our first guests. Well, our first guest was actually Luca Ciferri, who was the Italian correspondent. You might uh, remember in March of 2020, Milan and, and and that whole region was was really the the epicenter of all of it for uh, Europe long before it had moved to the United States. And Luca gave us a ground report what life was like. And it wasn't so much about automotive as much as it was life during the first days of COVID, because, of course, the Italian government had taken everybody off the streets. It was it was a fairly chaotic, tenuous time. Well, then that transitioned to asking friends of mine in the industry. Jose Munoz, I think, was guest number two. And he talked about how Hyundai was trying to navigate this world. And you're right. Uh, I think I stopped recording the daily segments at about. 200, maybe 185. 
And that's when I said, all right, uh, I need some help here. And Steve yeah. Smith, who was a member of our uh, team, volunteered to, to do at least one day a week. So he would take Fridays or Thursdays and I would continue to do the rest. Well, in the end, I end up it, it was almost, you know, year, year and a half. And we ended up talking to the entire industry. We talked to dealers, OEMs, suppliers. And I interviewed this guy named Elon Musk, who agreed to be on the program and not only did he give me, these were typically 10 minute um, uh, interviews, maybe 15 minutes at the outset. Well, when he and I were done talking, he had given me 75 minutes. And at that point we thought, I mean, nobody had talked to Musk. I was one of the uh, few folks to talk to Musk, even at an event that we had done a few years prior, mm -hmm. we split it up into three shows. And um, the most gratifying thing that I heard during that time was no one was traveling, very few, Many people were isolated. Very few people were going anywhere, but they appreciated Daily Drive because it was their connection to the industry. And in, again, not extended uh, formats, but a very tightly controlled interview segment. And it was great because I could just ask friends of mine in the industry if they wanted to be a part of it. And pretty soon they were coming to me and saying that they want to be a part of it. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And clearly you found um, some personal fulfillment too, right? Because then, you know, if you fast forward a couple of years and you make a transition personally for yourself and, and your your career um, to join SiriusXM, uh, start your own show there. Uh, talk a little bit about that maybe too. And I guess what about just talking to people and you do this uh, and you've done this for a long time on stages and now, you know, through your, your radio show and um, you have a couple of different podcasts that you host beyond uh, cars and culture as well. Um, so you've done this for a long time, but, but what about that is so appealing to you? It seems like you're really drawn to that conversation. Well, it goes back to my, uh, the start of my career. Really. I was a freelance radio guy um, pitching stories to the Canadian broadcasting uh, corporation, CBC and uh, I grew up in Canada and, and really just wanted to be on CBC Radio or CBC TV. It's, it, it's incredibly uh, prestigious platform. And leaving school, uh, it was one of the only things that I wanted to do. And they gave me the opportunity to have a voice on the radio. And I did that. But then I applied for a full-time job. And they said, well, actually, uh, we, don't, we don't think you're that qualified. So I went into print journalism. And uh, 20 years later, you know, 25 years later, here I am coming back around with Daily Drive, which I was sort of back on the radio again, if you will, although <laughs> in a different format. And then I started conversations with uh, Sirius XM, and they really were intrigued by the idea of a, uh, a show that focused on the, not just cars, not from a business to business perspective, but probably more of a personality perspective. And so that was the genesis of it on a, on a white sheet of paper. It was, well, can we talk to the athletes, actors, musicians, and business leaders, automotive business leaders, designers, marketers, CEOs, but let's talk about the passion of what they're doing. Let's talk about car culture. Let's talk about, and, and the beauty of the show is that we put, unknowingly, we put an ampersand in there. So it is and culture. So the and is the key of it. Because and we can talk to musicians and we can talk to actors, and um, you know that 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 side of it was always appealing to me because the one thing that I've always done throughout my journalism career is I've been a storyteller and goes back to days when I was a sports writer even long before automotive news and it was telling the story of sports and it was telling you know it was interviewing um, uh, you know prominent individuals and in this case it was in Indiana and then that 
led into the car, um, you know, piece of the story. And, and, it, and it was the tales, the personalities, the individuals. And all we're doing right now is we're documenting car culture, we're preserving car culture, but most importantly, we're highlighting the personalities that are around car culture. And that's probably been the thing to answer your question. It's probably the thing that's that's drawn me to it is that I can do all of the journalism that I did previously now in just a different format and in a long form format of 45 minutes now, 40 to 45, as you know, you get the opportunity to really get to know somebody well. And um, and so that that part of it has been um, has been special because we've we've heard some incredible stories throughout, as you said, uh, hundred plus guests now. <laughs> well, and you've had some big ones. I was looking because, you know, I, I can't say that I've listened to every single one of them, but I, I have tuned in quite often. And I mean, going through the list, Mark Wahlberg, Jimmy Johnson, John Elway, Chrissy Taylor, Toto Wolf, Jay Leno, Roger Penske, Rick Hendrick, Ernie Garcia. I mean, <laughs> just like the, it's, it's a laundry list of, of kind of who's who. And, and recently, um, well, maybe we can touch on, I'll tell you, I, I had the opportunity to um, uh, spend some time with an interview, Mr. Hendrick um, down in, in Charlotte a few years back and and he's just a great person to talk to just and pretty much i'm sure you, you would say this about probably everybody on this list that you get to talk to it's like just genuinely good people that are interesting and and care every one of them has been interesting and every one of them care uh, either about cars or the industry or even just the, their own industry that they're in and the, the yeah. beautiful part of the guests who we've had and i would just cite the example of guy berryman who's the bass player of coldplay i think they just hit a hundred shows on their current tour that they're on right now, a uh, global tour that started a year and a half ago. But Guy Berryman is great to interview because, okay, it wasn't just about the music. And actually in his case, we turned it into a two-part show because he gave me so much time. But it was about his role within Road Rat Magazine, which is a, a UK-based magazine. It's like a coffee table quarterly, really thick, great glossy paper, great writing, the whole thing. Well, I'm not just asking Guy about the latest album or about the tour or about his career in one of the biggest bands in music history, but I'm talking about his car collection or I'm talking about how he loves to go to Le Mans or, or the fact that he's the art director for Road Rat Magazine. And, you know, he's the one that, that settles on the images that are in that beautiful magazine. So I think their guard comes down, uh, maybe the bigger they get because they're talking about something that they really love. And, you know, Michael Strahan is another example. You know, of course, Good Morning America and uh, Fox NFL Sunday and uh, $100,000 Pyramid uh, or million, whatever it's, you know, million dollar right. pyramid, yeah. whatever it's called now, right? Um, and, uh, and yet he loved talking about cars, about the first car that he was in in Germany when he lived there and about the first car that he bought and what he bought when he became a New York giant. So I think that part of the, uh, the reason why this works um, my recent interview with John Oates, he, he's not talking about his relationship with Daryl Hall. In fact, we didn't even really get into it. We talked about how he's such a huge Porsche guy. So there's, there's so much to explore. And somebody said to me when I um, started the show, well, how are you going to do 52 episodes in a year? I mean, that's way out once a week here. How's this going to happen? Um, <laughs> bottom line is two years later, we could probably, or three months ahead, uh, in terms of guests, and we could probably fill 552 shows um, based on the number of people who we now know and who know us. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and recently, so the, the last handful, um, you've had 
Aylor Castronovas on. That was your most recent episode you published. Uh, right before that, Joseph Newgarden, who who subsequently went on and, and won <laughs> the Indy 500. Um, yeah. So that's that's pretty interesting, right? He comes on the show and then, but he is, you know, he's he's very prominent in IndyCar. Um, you had you had James Hinchcliffe on. Uh, Hinch was on not too long ago. Uh, so I, I've noticed, and I'm assuming some of it's timing, but I'm interested to hear your your thoughts. Um, a lot of IndyCar presence recently. Um, so it just just curious because one of the questions I had for you was was kind of where sports went from, right? So you ended up, if I if I read correctly, and just correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, you ended up in in Salina, Ohio, as a <laughs> sports reporter, right? And, and then Fort Wayne, Indiana. So not two giant metropolises or anything like that, but um, I'm sure good uh, good readership base and, and passionate folks in those those parts of the country. Um, so, but but it, it looked like you you were. Uh, kind of focused in on sports reporting. And then um, you, you, it sounded like had some automotive exposure, uh, like automotive retail exposure, and then it obviously flipped to automotive news, spent some time in Europe. Um, but I was, I was curious, you know, where, where the sports went from, but it seems like the passion hasn't left based off of a lot of your guests. Yeah, it's not left based on that. And the, the first part of your question is, yes, we're thematically focused around having drivers or ex-drivers for the month of May for Indy. In the same way that last August, we spent three or four weeks focusing on Pebble Beach because we knew the Concours d'Elegance and everything going on with Pebble Beach. Well, now let's interview folks who are part of the Pebble Beach experience. So, yes, that's organized and planned, and it's, and it's exactly <laughs> exactly what we want to do. And, and other big events, we try to gravitate, you know, we'll get guests that gravitate toward the you know the timing. Um, I'm off to Le Mans next week. We're going to do a series of Le Mans interviews with all of the folks who are focused on that. But on the sports front, the second part of your question, yeah, I mean, I was I was a sports guy. I covered Peyton Manning's first few years as an Indianapolis Colt, um, covered the uh, Pacers as, as they were making their way through uh, the playoffs with Larry Bird and Isaiah Thomas as uh, coach during that time. But most importantly, I covered racing. I mean, it's Indiana, right? So it's, right. it's the Indy 500. At that point, it was the month of May. Um, yep. So we spent a ton of time down there interviewing IndyCar uh, drivers. And also, while I was in Fort Wayne, the Brickyard 400 uh, uh, came to be. And, and so spent a lot of time with the NASCAR folks then on the, on the other side of it, usually in August. Formula One was at Indianapolis at that time, um, at a time when very few people cared in America about Formula One, <laughs> let me tell you. It was, was not drive to survive. I mean, it lasted for a few years in Indianapolis and then just didn't work anymore, despite all the track improvements and everything they did to try to accommodate Bernie Ecclestone and the drivers and 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 you know, all of that drama. But yeah, the, the sports was always there. I was always a sports guy, loved writing about sports. And then I started this thing called the car column for the Sunday paper of the Fort Wayne Journal Gazette. And lo and behold, I mean, you know, manufacturers were sending cars to my uh, doorstep because they wanted to see the car review in the following Sunday's issue because there was a lot of car advertising. This is pre-cars.com or just the, yep. uh, the start of it. You know, Kelly Blue Book and, you know, all Auto Trader. This is when car dealerships bought advertising. And um, and so they needed content for those the Sunday business page. And what better than a car column? So that actually led to automotive news, um, and then everything else that you you know just shared. But um, you know, is uh, to come back to doing sports now, sports and cars. It's just a natural. I mean, I I love drivers. 
Uh, I, I love racing. Um, we've had a great run on the, on the program talking, you know, with Toto Wolf of uh, Mercedes Benz and Zach Brown and um, uh, host of either NASCAR owners, Joe Gibbs, Mr. Hendrick was on the program as one of the early guests, as you mentioned, uh, told a wonderful story about his life, uh, which is, which is somewhat hard to believe all the, all the incredible success coming from a very humble start. And um, it just goes on and on. We've had Stefano Domenicali, the head of Formula One. We've had um, folks who were part of ESPN who, who launched, effectively led to Drive to Survive. Um, mm -hmm. Sean Bratches was one of those uh, executives. So it's been, it's been great. Uh, the, the synergy of all of it. And um, as I said, we, we don't have a, um, uh, we're not looking for, for guests anymore, um, including a funny thing today, uh, had a, uh, uh, somebody reach out to say, do we want to talk to one of the top female wrestlers of WWE? Uh, I'm not <laughs> sure what the car connection is there. But we'll look at it. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Um, so did you make it down for the uh, Indy 500 uh, this, this year? No, I didn't. We, we had some other plans uh, during this uh, Memorial Day uh, uh, weekend. But I, I've spent, I've probably been to Indianapolis um, as, a, as a writer and then as a fan, probably more times than I can uh, really, uh, you know, uh, remember in the whole mix, probably at, at least 10, 10 to 15 times. Um, so it's OK. I mean, it, it's there, there's a lot going on in Indianapolis and I'm sure, you know, maybe next year we'll find our way there. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's a it's a special place, a different environment. And it was it was a great race this year, too. A uh, little little too much stop and start at the end. But uh, it was exciting, if nothing else. And Joseph sure. won. He, he's he's got right. the magic. You know, it's not a it's not a curse. I guess it's a, a the magic touch of being on the program two weeks ago, and I couldn't have been happier. I mean, there were thirty three drivers, potential drivers. We interviewed two of them, two active ones, and uh, we were hoping it was either going to be Elio or it was going to be Joseph. And sure enough, so uh, you know, look for a follow up uh, from that conversation coming soon. Yeah, that'd be great. Now, have you seen um, the the documentary series that um, uh, Penske Entertainment? It's, it's on the CW. It's called Hundred Days to Indy. Have you seen yep. that one? Yes. Okay. Um, what What did you think? I, I mean, it's they still have a couple more episodes to go. The way they timed it out, they'll have a couple episodes here after the race. But um, I, I mean, I was I was intrigued. I thought it was I thought it was well done. But I'm curious what your thoughts are. I mean, behind the scenes of any of these sports has become just the thing now, right? Whether it's tennis or golf. Um, drive to survive, especially during COVID really hit yep. on a, on a thread there. And what's the most compelling thing about this? It's not just the behind the scenes stuff, but it's the storylines and it's the actors and it's the protagonists and, and, uh, you know, those who are part of the, of, of the spectacle that you can get to know maybe a little bit more. And, you know, I, in 1982, I was on the streets of Detroit with my parents watching the first Detroit Grand Prix, Formula One Grand Prix, go to the streets of Detroit. And I'll tell you, the streets were filled with Brazilians and, you know, Europeans, um, not many Americans and a few Canadians. And it was primarily uh, a closed sport for a long period of time. And what happened when Liberty Media took over from, um, you know, former uh, Formula One ownership is is they kind of uh, pulled the ropes of the curtain back, if you will, open the ropes and, you know, uh, removed uh, the curtain to see who these guys really are. And the bottom line is that they're really interesting people and they're and they're interesting subjects to to follow along, especially with the threat of 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 any kind of angst or, or, or anger that goes on among these teams. And I think what IndyCar is doing now and we talked to 
uh, James uh, Hinchcliffe about it. We talked to Joseph a little bit about it too, is it's doing the same thing. It's giving fans an opportunity to understand what's, what life is like, uh, you know, in the trailer and in the garages. And um, uh, funny that many people have um, now, when you talk about other sports, have talked about how much they love the golf um, uh, Netflix piece. And, and uh, if you're a fan of the sport, you just want more of the sport. And uh, we've seen it with, you know, ESPN has, has done some things during training camp with the NFL uh, as well. And I think you're going to see more of this because it's truly reality TV because it is real. Um, and sometimes you see things that you might not expect. And, and I think IndyCar is doing exactly what it should do, especially with how competitive IndyCar is right now. I mean, so little uh, separation between the top teams and the bottom teams, uh, unlike Formula One, which has basically two or three teams that are dominating now. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it shows, too, because you're starting to see some, I mean, I would call them rivalries really start to emerge and develop. And there's some excitement there, right, with the, the tension between the individuals, between the drivers where um, – you know, there's you, you can just you can sense it, you can feel it. And then those those shows help um, uh, amplify it for sure. But then you watch it on the track and, and you go, huh, I wonder. Right. Like, yeah. does that have. <laughs> right. Well, I, I, I think uh, these guys are all family, um, you know, off the track and they're all fierce competitors on the track. Yeah. And I think what happens is shows like that uh, really amplify the and of course, why wouldn't they? it's all ratings and it's all, you know, it's made for TV as they say. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, showing all of the stuff where they maybe don't get along is, is way more interesting than the stuff where they all, you know, are, are, uh, you know, uh, hand in hand, uh, you know, arm in arm. Yeah. Do you think it's always been that way? So I, I'm curious, you've been doing this for a while from a, just a sheer creating content perspective, right? Whether it's journalism, whether it's um, entertainment, whether it's a blend of the two, um, you know, whether it's presenting to a, a giant room full of people, you've been doing this for a long time. Um, when you think about the evolution of content in general, right? And, and, the public consuming information. Um, do you think that's changed over time or has there always been that common thread and that desire of, of elements that uh, draw people in elements to a story that make it uh, a really, really good story? Well, until chat, until chat GBT puts us all out of work. <laughs> um, I, I think a great story is going to be a great story. And uh, certainly that was my case automotive news or in any of the other newspaper writing that I did prior to, or any of the interviews that I've done is, I think people gravitate towards great stories. They gravitate towards personalities. Um, they want to hear someone else's story. It's the it's the human connection. It's the bond that exists. And so I don't think that that part has changed at all. Um, if, if if anything, in in a world that that is where we are bombarded with information at all times, uh, usually in in little sound bites or little clips or Twitter sized um, uh, um, you know menu. Uh, you know, uh, portions rather it's, um, it is a hundred percent true that having something that differentiates yourself from that world is going to stand apart. And that's where a great compelling story, you know, as far as journalism goes, you see the New York times is still doing extremely well because it, especially on the weekend, because it offers long form journalism. It offers the chance to really dive into a subject that is not just bite-sized because I think ultimately now we may be getting a little tired of the bite size. Uh, Instagram, <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat world. 
um, where there, there, there are only, um, there's only so much of that that we can take without really understanding truly the, the depth and the knowledge of something. And that's what I love about the radio program too, is that uh, we're able to, uh, through these interviews, we're able to hear from Mercedes boss, form, uh, you know, Formula One boss, Toto Wolf, talk about how he was with his sister on the bus after they got kicked out of school uh, because they couldn't afford to go to school anymore when, you know, he was in his, uh, you know, early teens. I mean, that's not something that would be appetizing on a, in a, in a short form Twitter environment, but listening to Toto talk about that or listening to Rick Hendrick talking about the day that he heard that his son had died and his family had died in the plane crash. Um, you know, that's the compelling stuff, the detail, the personalities is really what what ultimately wins out. And it's not anything that uh, AI is ever going to uh, replace. I'm, I'm convinced of that because you have to have the human interaction. Yeah. Yeah. And that connection, that interaction, I think, carries across pretty much everything we do. Right. I mean, when you, you certainly think about journalism, and you think about um, telling stories and you think about any sort of media. But at the same time, every connection and I want to shift gears a little bit um, to, to auto retail just because of your experience, both in the past and, and what you're doing today with the Feldman Automotive Group and a few other um, things that you have your your, your hands into. Um, but but that personal connection is is always so so important. And it just, it, it kind of grounds us, I think all of us, um, and how we interact may be different, but the interactions there, and that's what, <clears throat> that's what kind of grounds everything that we do. So I, I agree with you. There's those, those elements that, uh, that personality makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. The dealer in, in, in an auto retail context, the dealer makes the difference. You can yeah. have, I mean, if anything, COVID has, has, uh, proven the fact that dealerships are now more important than ever because uh, it was a connection to the sale. It was an explanation of the product that's being purchased. It was uh, running through uh, F&I options or getting your car service or any of those things. And dealers have gotten really smart about connecting with consumers, meeting consumers where they are now. That's become the operative phrase, right? Is how can you meet consumers where they are, whether it's mm -hmm. online to start a transaction or whether it's in a store after the transaction has already been consummated and now it's delivery time and let's explain how the new EV works. But there's there's no doubt that uh, yes, data is more important than ever. And COVID, you know, proved that the consumer was definitely in charge and the consumer wanted more data and and indeed wanted to um, uh, you know make that that point of sale a much more efficient process. That's happened, no question. But dealers have also learned and auto retail has changed the point where they understand what a consumer wants in that part of the journey. And we'll meet them wherever they are in that part of the journey. And maybe it is midway through, or maybe it is at the end. Um, and, and certainly on the, on the service side, dealers have become uh, much more focused on trying to make sure that a customer is happy so that they come back for repeat business. And um, I, I think we, we learned a lot of lessons in the last few years. And one of them is that that consumer one-to-one -one element is not going away at any time soon. And in fact, has been sharpened, skills have been sharpened, and there's uh, a greater tendency from a dealer's perspective to tune into what the consumer's needs are, because we're not going back. There's no way this is going backwards. Right. People right. aren't going to stop ordering Amazon. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, let's face it, the, the first form of delivery, you know, in whatever form it was going back, I don't know, uh, a thousand years or 500 years was a donkey loaded with uh, with stuff going to a destination. Okay, well, 
there's your first DoorDash, right? There's your first Amazon. And, uh, you know, that original form of serving the, the customer in whatever primitive form it was has now rapidly advanced. Um, and the Amazons of the world and the DoorDashes have their place, but dealerships have their place as well, especially given the price of new vehicles now at the record price, uh, you know, now, uh, you know, obviously hovering around $50,000 per per new vehicle sold average. Um, that's not something that's going to be uh, an, an Amazonized experience. Yeah, you're right. And, and you think about, so you go back to your example of, you know, the donkey loaded down and, and I'd take it even a, a step further and say, you know, when, when the wheelbarrow was first invented, right? Right. right. Um, there, there was probably a group of people in a, in a town um, that said, oh my gosh, this thing's going to put us out of business. All we do is carry buckets of water from the, the river to the town and that's our job. But now this wheelbarrow thing's here and, uh, and we're not really needed anymore. What are we going to do? But did they put them out of business? No, it amplified what they did. It made them better. It made them more efficient. It made them uh, stronger and, and to be able to be a, a better contributor. Right. So um, that's something that I, I think about a lot. And I think a lot of us are focused on is, is where are those areas that dealers are really bringing value um, to certainly to the consumer, but also to the manufacturer? Where are they adding value? Because that's where um, I think, you know, the, the future kind of lies is, is how do you amplify the, the areas that you do bring value? Um, but then also, what are those new ones down the road? Right. You think about in today's world and, you know, the dealer definitely brings value when it comes to financing. Right. They're kind of a broker. They arrange financing. Uh, they're a marketplace for aftermarket products. They're, uh, there's a lot of areas where they bring value, <clears throat> um, but identifying some of those in the future that that are that are opportunities, I think, will be really important too. And products are not getting less complicated either. No, right. So uh, as as the world does make its EV transition, however fast or however slow that is, there's no question that consumers need to be educated. You and I both hear probably the same things that you know potential new EV customers are saying. Well. I don't know where I'm going to plug it in and I don't know how to take care of the battery. And I don't even maybe know some of the functionality of this new vehicle. Uh, that's where dealers, smart dealers have really stepped forward and developed platforms on their, on their websites or, or, or developed in-house experts who can add the value of explaining range and uh, product differentiation. And um, well, what is a road trip look like? Um, you know, where are the infrastructure points, there's a way for a dealer to really work with consumers on a more one-to-one -one level to help them in this transition on a changing propulsion system, because it's not like we're just adding Apple CarPlay. Um, you know, this is, a, this is a whole different mindset, uh, shift. It's a, it's an infrastructure shift. It's a, it's a propulsion shift. So what does that mean to consumers who might be a little weary, uh, and leery, uh, of, of, of the subject. Um, so that's where I think the value added will definitely come in. And, and as things change, as over the air updates become more prevalent as service changes, um, that's dealers can step forward and, and add the kind of value that, uh, you're in fact talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And when you think about, you talked a lot about EVs right there. And, and I was actually talking with a dealer just last week. <clears throat> he was in Minnesota 
And he says, you know, I don't, I don't think batteries will hold a charge in negative 20 degrees. Hmm. Like what, <laughs> what is all this? What, you know, how, how, how fast are things going to progress to the point where this becomes an immediate need for, for all of us, right? I think there's, there's definitely pockets of the country where um, the infrastructure will be built faster, where demand will be higher naturally. Um, but I think it's important for all of us to remember that <clears throat> this isn't a universal thing. Right. This isn't, um, you know, at the manufacturer level, there's a lot of talk around, you know, moving to EVs and being all EV by a certain point. But I think when we take a step back, the reality is we're going to see pockets of um, acceptance and pockets of utilization that that far outpace the overall average and then some that, that far lag behind the overall average. Well, and you're already seeing some automakers walk back comments and saying, you know, Internal combustion engine vehicles will be here for a lot longer than what we may have said before. And you see parts of the European Union saying, well, maybe if we modify a gasoline engine uh, to be a little bit more efficient, is there a hybrid that we can, a hybrid path we can take? And of course, Toyota has been very upfront about the fact that they believe that hybrid is a great solution. And uh, Jack Hollis recently spoke at an event that I uh, moderated and, and pointed out the fact that the United States, from a carbon footprint perspective, relative to EVs, makes up a very, very small portion of the world's uh, carbon emissions issues. So, you know, these things all are—they're they're platitudes, right? They're—they are—and they're points in time. It's a—it's a vision. I get it, and much of it was uh, a reaction to what occurred, of course, with Volkswagen and and diesel and and uh, you know diesel gate, which. You know, trials are still going on over this right now, you know, with former executives. So, you know, it lingers still. And of course, Volkswagen's made a wholesale change to completely say, you know, we're out. I understand why these things have occurred. I think getting the consumer there and getting the grid there and, you know, having a situation where a California uh, government or a Colorado government uh, tells its citizens to turn off air conditioning or don't plug in their cars during hot summer months is not exactly leading to a natural evolution of having EVs all over the road next year. So you know that uh, there are gonna be improvements that are made. This is, it's not a light switch moment. Um, it is a dimmer switch as in it's turning up very, very slowly. Um, and yeah, EVs are being accepted, sure. There's also a price point to think about. There are incentives to think about. And for most, uh, especially those in dense urban areas who live in condominiums or high rises, it's just impossible. It's just it's just not possible right now. So, or at least it's not possible without a lot of effort, which is probably more effort than those folks are willing to put up with. So for now, it's a marker. It's it's a point in time. It's a vision. Uh, will we get there at the pace that's been described? Probably not. Uh, will we get there? Sure, probably. And there could also be something else that comes along in the meantime, which is always the often talked about fuel cell. Uh, development, which makes just as much sense, if not more. So a little bit of, you know, patience in terms of uh, uh, fervor around all of this changing tomorrow. And I know a lot of dealers are very nervous about it. A lot of dealers are investing a lot of money right now, by the way, and hoping for returns. So there's, um, there's, there are many things to sort out on this journey. Yeah. And you had um, on, uh, I think the full throttle podcast, you had Daryl Kenningham on uh, yeah. of group one, and you were talking about the infrastructure required. Um, <clears throat> share a little bit, because you mentioned dealers investing a lot. And, and that is, I mean, that, that's something that's top of mind, right? And some manufacturers starting to require these things, whether it's in a, in a redesign or in a new build. Um, it's not cheap. 
right? It's this equipment's not cheap, and this this uh, whole process isn't cheap. So talk about that a little bit too. I mean, millions invested by some auto dealers who I talk to uh, at a at a pretty close level. Um, you know, they've got to do it. They have to meet the requirements. Manufacturers have said that they have to meet their uh, requirements within a short period of time, and and again, it's multiple millions, um, and that's to to take a mainstream volume brand and to prepare it for the round of EVs that are coming. I just hope that the consumer follows. I mean, with that much investment, once again, dealers, the great entrepreneurs are looking for opportunities. There's no question, but they also need to make sure that they get along with their manufacturers well. And so pushing on one side to demand that these changes are made um, ahead of the consumer being there uh, or, or, you know, a consumer who's not quite there, I think is causing a lot of friction between the two groups. There's always friction between the two groups, right? But that, but that is certainly a, a you know a pain point. And um, some dealers have had to get pretty creative. You know, whether it's solar panels that are on the rooftops, or whether it's partnering with a local authority to put in uh, charging infrastructure. There are a ton of vendors and entrepreneurs who are out there who are coming up with solutions to these problems, and it's going to sort itself out as well. But yeah, the the investment right now for you know, um, a, a perceived return that's not quite there yet, I think yeah. is um, a little off kilter. Yep, I agree. And and how much is going to change by the time that it, it can be brought back, right? Between b- Before you get that return, how much is going to change, right? Our charger is going to be right. different. Is, is more investment going to be needed? So it, it'll be interesting to watch for sure. For sure. Um, well, Jason, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I definitely appreciate you sitting down and chatting. And, and I know you're, uh, uh, you're, one of the busiest people that I think I, I know, I think you do, you're everywhere. You're either on a stage, on a radio show, on a podcast, doing consulting work, something that you, I, I don't think you ever stop. Um, so I, I really do appreciate you taking some time. But before we wrap, is there anything that um, that we haven't talked about that we should, anything you want to touch on that we didn't get a chance to? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I, I think this is a dynamic industry. I think it's ever changing. That's the part that was so appealing uh, for me, some almost 20 years ago, when when I first you know dedicated uh, everything I was doing to automotive, uh, when those first cars pulled up in my driveway with the car column that was based out of Indiana, I didn't know what I was getting into, and uh, you know my neighbors thought that I was probably dealing drugs. I'm sure because the <laughs> the volume of high level high line or or even just you know the volume of vehicles that was coming was pretty intense. And, and, um, and then I had a chance to kind of see what this industry was like. Um, I, I was less of a sports fan when I was a sports writer. I'm much more of a sports fan now because I'm not living it, but I'm very much an automotive fan. And I, and I think that this, this dynamic industry is never dull. The personalities are never dull. And, um, and the car passion, which is primarily what the XM show is about, um, is, is real. No, that's great. Well, again, I can't say thank you enough for uh, for taking the time to join. Really appreciate your perspective, and I hope we get to catch up again soon. Great. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. Well, that was a really fun conversation, a different conversation for us, but uh, I really enjoyed it. Jason Stein is uh, is something else. He's got such a great background in our industry and and beyond. Appreciate his insights. Um, everything he's doing right now with Sirius XM and the Cars and Culture radio show is fantastic. So, uh, again, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Before we hop off, don't forget, you can watch or listen to episodes of Connected on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify podcasts. And make sure to subscribe so you're notified every other week when new episodes are released. Thanks so much, and we'll see you in two weeks.